Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, it's time for your weekly dose of science and technology. You're listening to Babbage, and I'm Jason Palmer, one of the editors of Espresso, the Economist's daily briefing app. What I would say is a great way to start your day. This week how to do bioengineering without the need for cells. You throw away all the DNA and all of the cell wall and some of the other stuff in there, and you're left with this vat of gloop. Also on the show, the digital world is fueled by data, and five giant tech firms are hoarding most of the resources. What's to be done? If you were to break up Google in five Googlets or baby Googles, I mean, one of them would win again. Within a few years, you'd have the same problem. And take a listen to this. We'll take a sonic excursion 11 kilometers down into the belly of the Mariana Trench. First, though, the world's great businesses once hungered for oil, yet now those at the forefront thirst for another resource to fuel their progress, data. Data can be harvested from all over the digital world, and the supply doesn't look likely to dry up anytime soon. But that data flow is changing the nature of market competition, and regulators are struggling to adapt to the shift. Joining me now to discuss how this problem might be solved is our technology editor, Ludwig Ziegler. Hi, Ludwig. Hello. Talk us through, first of all, what you're calling the data economy. Basically, whatever we do now leaves a digital trail, not just online, that's been the case for a long time, but increasingly offline. And that's because basically all the devices that are around become connected and become sources of data. Phones, wearables, Phones, Amazon wearables. dashes. I mean, there's, there's projects basically going for sewer systems and, and counting the bacteria. Everything becomes a data, a data source. And that data is harvested, and that is increasingly made use of by AI techniques, machine learning, algorithms, data centers, all that kind of. You, you pump it through there, and out comes some, some kind of a service. For example, self-driving cars is mostly a data problem. Because they're mostly sensitive. Right. Self-driving cars, yeah, they're car, you drive them around, but they gather data, that data is collected and then pumped back into data centers and turned into algorithms. These algorithms are then sent back to the car and improve how your car can, can drive. How does that make an economy? It's, you can turn that into to services and you can make money. So when you think about the Google or the Facebooks or all these companies, I mean, yes, Google makes a lot of money with advertising, but increasingly is an AI company and says so. They're an AI-first company. And Facebook is the same thing. Microsoft is the same thing. And so in the briefing I've written, I've described that economy and how it works. Uh, does it have markets? What are the kind of the policy problems, privacy or social equality, and also antitrust? Yeah, well, exactly. The, the sort of the principal point that you're making here is that five big tech firms have a, have a stranglehold on this data. That's, that's Alphabet, Google's parent company, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft. And that problem, moreover, looks to only get worse because these things sort of have these these network effects. There's always been a debate about are these companies, these big tech companies, too, too powerful? 
powerful. And we at The Economist were always a bit skeptical. We said, I mean, they're, okay, they're powerful, but size is not a crime. As long as they don't do anything illegal, it's not, not a catastrophe. Also, I mean, there's new technology coming around, and that kind of, we know kind of that was Microsoft was the big uh, bully on the, on the block, but now it's Google or Facebook, so things keep changing, so you don't have to necessarily have to intervene. I think that's changed by the data economy, because these companies can now spread their wings much more easily, because data is eating the world. If everything is data, and you are the company, or you, there's a set of companies that have the technique and the infrastructure to, to exploit that data much better than other companies, then they become more powerful. Also, partially, these companies are good or so big because they're good, they're innovative, but also they have somewhat of a, an unfair advantage, and that is network effect. So the more users they have, the more attractive they become for other users, and it becomes kind of a flywheel. Yeah, a, a, a runaway effect. A run effect. But I mean, that was, that was confined to one industry, like Facebook as a social network, it's, it's pretty obvious, or Windows operating system, it's pretty obvious. But data effects kind of turbocharge that. The more data you can collect the better your service gets, the more users you can attract, the more data you can collect. You can use data to create more data. So if you refer to data as this era's oil, you know, a, a commodity of that sort, but the nature of the markets that it's, it's creating are fundamentally different, does that mean you feel differently about the prospect of, of breaking up these huge companies that seem to, to have all this control? I mean, I still think breakup is counterproductive. In the end, you don't solve the problem. If you were to break up Google in five Googlets or baby Googles, one of them would win again. Within a few years, you'd have the same problem again. Also, also it's very disruptive. Uh, uh, you, you slow down innovation. It doesn't necessarily help the consumers, but I mean, you can do other things. One thing uh, is is to to modernize antitrust tools. So we have antitrust tools as far as they're they're enforced, but they were developed in the industrial age. Uh, And so they're kind of in a way blind to uh, what's happening in the data economy. So how to fix them? How would antitrust rules look different to, to manage them? Let me give you an example. So Facebook buys WhatsApp for $19 billion. WhatsApp is a startup with, I think, at that point, 55 employees and no income. I mean, that should raise a flag. And, and the reason they bought it is, uh, I think, because WhatsApp could have become a, a serious competitor to, to Facebook. It had data. It kind of gives you this pulse, what's happening, what, what are people thinking about, what are they sending around. But that merger was approved. And so you had the number one messaging service merged with the number two messaging service and, and also combining their, their data piles. That was improved because the European Commission, for example, didn't see that as a major problem because they said, oh, there's enough data around, there's enough text messaging services around. But it's, it's, that's kind of an old and industrial age approach. So the, the, the new way of looking at this from, a, from an antitrust point of view then is simply who's got the control of, of the most data. We, we think about that commodity. That's not the only reason. But I mean, antitrust authorities should look at that, should have the tools to look at that. And that's not the only thing. For example, colluding algorithms. So these pricing algorithms, apparently they can tacitly collude. That happens in, in, at a speed and a complexity humans can't see. So I think antitrust authorities have to have the technology to look at these things. You also mentioned the the merits, though, of transparency by these companies and making clear what they're doing with your data and so on. And in some instances, perhaps handing control of the data back to the people who are generating it. It is, after all, what the the price we pay for all these free things, the usual story of if if it's free, then then you're the product. The way this, this thing has been set up by almost historical accident is that the control of your data or data in general rests with, with the companies. 
computers. I mean, so you can buy your supercomputer, your smartphone, and carry it around, but you don't actually have uh, much control over what data leaves that uh, that smartphone. I mean, you can. I mean, if you have enough time. So, but I mean, so, so, so the locus of control is clearly with the companies, and I think that locus has to be changed so that the consumer has more more control over his or her data. Right. Thanks very much for that, Ludwig. Thanks, Jason. So then, Babbage listeners, are you worried about the data oligarchs and their control of information? Would you prefer to know more about the way your data are used? Let us know by emailing us at radio at Next up, every living organism has been provided with minute factories to produce everything it needs, neatly wrapped up in its cells. But could cells be past their prime? Bioengineers are now working on ways to take out the specific bits they need from inside and discard the rest. Our technology correspondent, Hal Hodson, joins me now to explain more. Hi there, Hal. How are you doing, Jason? Not so bad. Start me off by telling me, though, how cells make stuff in the first place. The way it works is that in your cell, you have a number of components. There is DNA, which are the instructions. There is RNA, which are the messenger molecules which carry the instructions. And there are ribosomes, which take the instructions and crank out proteins. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's your basic picture. Recipe courier factory. Exactly. But the suggestion here is that we don't need all of that and all of the attendant machinery to get what it is that we want from cells. Exactly. Exactly. You, in particular, do not need the actual living entity of the cell. So what you do is you take a bunch of cells, usually a coli, you pass them through a very, very tiny little nozzle, and this tears them up. And then you throw away all the DNA and all of the cell wall and some of the other stuff in there, and you're left with this vat of gloop that is just RNA and ribosomes and sort of a liquid factory ready to go. This is a silly question, and I know it, but I wonder if anybody else is going to be wondering it. You still have to start with cells to get the gloop. Yes, you, you have do. to start with life. Yes, you do have to start with cells to get the gloop. The thing is that with E. coli, you can grow them pretty easily. You start with cells to get the gloop, and then the crucial step is that once you've got your gloop ready to go, this liquid machinery, you then drop in the DNA that basically functions as the instructions to, to build the protein you have the factory and the messenger. Now you're dropping in a new recipe. Yeah. So the key thing is that you throw away the instructions that told the original life form what to do, and you plug in some other DNA, perhaps that you've designed yourself or that you've extracted from the natural world that you suspect does a useful thing, you throw that in and you see what happens. Sounds a little bit complicated, not too bad so far, but tell me what the problem is with using cells as, as we kind of already do. It, it seems like we've kind of cracked this problem. What's wrong with it? Well, it is a very, very old technique. In fact, cell-free biology won the Nobel Prize for chemistry in 1907. So it's a good example of how long it can take science to become commercial technology. But the reason you want to do this in the first place is because when you try and use cells to make things, you have to grapple with the cell's own agenda. You have to work around the fact that the cell, for instance, wants to go on living and reproducing. And if you are making, say, a fuel that happens to also be a solvent, you might end up dissolving the very thing that is producing the solvent before it can make very much of it. And so cells and life in general is a little bit inconvenient. And so it's a matter of just stripping back the bits that we want so as to not have to deal with the bits that we don't want. And presumably this goes up the chain to other creatures that we use for various nefarious needs. Exactly. We rely on animals or organisms in various forms throughout our, you know, industrial supply chains. And in general, they're difficult to work with. You only have to look at a factory farm to see that in order to supply the rich world and increasingly the developing world with meat, 
you have to do some rather unpleasant things that end up with problems like antibiotic resistance. So the the cell-free version of this, what's going on with this at the moment? You've looked into this and apparently this is now finally, after a century of waiting, kind of coming into the, the industrial sphere. What is now happening is that a company called Sutro Biopharma is starting to make an antibody which will be a component of a drug that will be tested by the FDA at the beginning of next year. They are making that in a 1,000-litre cell-free bioreactor. A vat. A big steel vat. And one way of thinking about it is that instead of thinking of it as cell-free, what they've really done is make one giant cell. And that's a cell designed for human needs. So in a way, you could think of that cell as a living organism. And its purpose in life is a human economic purpose. But they're not the only ones who are doing this. Another one of these startups is called Sinvitro Bio. And what they want to do is use the cell-free gloop to prototype things. They want to take DNA from all over the planet, organisms that live next to thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, organisms that live in very salty water, that potentially, you know, do cool things. And they want to take their DNA and drop them into this gloop and see what happens. And you you mentioned in the piece also a company that's working on the same sort of technique to get something a, a little more work a day, which is my zero-calorie beverage. Yes. So Greenlight Biosciences wants to make an analog of a sugar called ribose. And this analog they want to make is not digestible. So you would get your sweetness, but not necessarily your calories. And that's starting to go towards this sort of slightly crazy future where you're just churning out all kinds of things in these vats of dead machinery. They're also talking about using the system to make RNA itself that is designed to basically sterilize mosquitoes. And there's not really any hypothetical reason why you couldn't use this to start making the feedstocks for plastics, for clothes, for fibers, for different kinds of foods. And eventually you could see this dovetailing with another research strand that's in the lab at the moment, which is animal-free meat or animal-free protein. That's kind of the biggie because, you know, so many animals around the world are currently essentially our meat slaves. And I do think that technology like this, probably not exactly like this, but more conceptually, the idea of using our cleverness to skip using organisms to meet our needs will help us there. Thanks very much, Hal. Thanks, Jason. Finally, Challenger Deep is a cavern that stretches along the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Lying around 11 kilometers down, it's the deepest known part of the ocean seabed. The extreme pressures of water at those depths mean that conventional exploration is pretty tricky. Unmanned research submarines have imploded at shallower depths, so researchers in America have decided to use a different approach. Dropping a microphone down there. So we expected it to be somewhat quiet, and, and it was. When it was quiet in Challenger Deep, it was very quiet. That was Bob Ziak. Director of an acoustics program in the Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory that's part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The goal of his team was to make the first known sound recording in the canyon. Over a period of 24 days, they listened to see what, if anything, they could hear. It's been known for quite some time now that uh, man-made noise in the ocean has been increasing since the 1950s and 1960s. And this is thought to be due to increases in global shipping traffic. And also uh, it's been increasing because of uh, increased efforts at oil exploration and oil ex extraction. So there's a lot of man-made noise going on in the ocean and it's increasing noise levels. And we have the goal of seeing if these noise levels are getting down to all parts of the world's oceans. Uh, to do this, they developed a specialized deep ocean hydrophone. A uh, hydrophone is an underwater microphone, and it records changes in pressure 
in the water, and you know, sound is a change of pressure. There's a lot of sheer physical pressure descending to Challenger Deep. Although the hydrophone itself is resistant, it's made of ceramic and therefore durable, the rest of the equipment used to record is a little more fragile. The trick is to get the, the recording package, the data logger, you know, the, all the electronics to survive, as well as the battery power. That is placed within a pressure case. We built one out of titanium, and it's roughly a half inch thick. With equipment secured and strengthened, it was simply a matter of picking the right spot. We had a gauge of the currents in the, in the area, and so we went upstream a little bit and then dropped the, uh, the hydrophone and the anchor over the side, and the instrument free falls down to the seafloor. And so it's 11 kilometers, so it took about six hours to, to reach the, the seafloor. And then they listened. At first, all was quiet. When it was noisy, it was very noisy. <laughs> we had a, we had a uh, typhoon that passed nearby overhead, hundreds of earthquakes. We know the Mariana Trench is a seismically active zone, and so that wasn't too much of a surprise, but it was, it was neat to see all the earthquake signals coming in and, and to think that actually our sensor uh, was beneath the depth of the earthquake, which is an unusual situation for most uh, seismic sensors. We recorded several different uh, baleen whale calls. Also recorded a lot of uh, ship noise. which we sort of expected, given that Guam is a, a major commercial shipping hub in the Western Pacific. The hydrophone also picked up a very distinctive sound wave. Uh, the sonar wasn't a very, it didn't happen for a long period of time. It was mostly just a few hours on one day. Uh, it was every minute. But it was a very loud source. So you can imagine that if you're a marine mammal sitting in you know, the ocean around Challenger Deep it would be pretty, pretty loud sound and probably cause some disturbance. Also, the, it was loud enough that you can hear the sonar is, is essentially reflecting, echoing back and forth over the canyon walls. Uh, so it's uh, it a pretty intense sound. Dr. Ziak explained that a system of similar hydrophones could be used to pick up sounds of a more threatening nature. I would like to put our hydrophone on tsunami buoys and tsunami sensors because the sound waves from earthquakes in the ocean travel faster than the tsunami waves do at, at the sea surface. So the acoustic waves could be used as another part of an early warning system for earthquakes that are hazardous and generate tsunamis. And the long-term goal? to make an ambient soundscape of the world's oceans in the places where other observation methods don't work. So sound is the only thing we have to really enables us to look into and see what's going on in, in the deep ocean. And so yes, I think if we make an ocean sound map, that'll probably give us fast new insights into how the ocean is behaving, how marine life and how ecosystems are doing, if they're healthy, if they're, how they interact with one another. It'd be a whole wide variety of information available. That's all for this episode of Babbage. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, take a moment to rate it through your favorite podcast app or on iTunes. 
As always, if you have any thoughts on this week's show, feel free to email us at radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.